It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 319 for November 18th, 2012. This week, creating a well-edited video isn't as hard as you may think. Some IT managers and business owners say they'll take a pass on Windows 8, I'm betting they'll be forced to change their minds. This was a fun week for frauds that arrived as spams, and you'll be surprised by the ploys that some people fall for. In short circuits, Windows head Steven Sanofsky is out at Microsoft. A free online course might someday generate college-level credit. And next week, it's the sound of silence as TechBiter takes a short break. I installed a review copy of Adobe Premiere Elements in September, and I've been trying to find time ever since to take it out for a test drive. Instead, the introduction turned out to be a trial by fire, and the week after a niece and nephew were baptized, I took along a Canon point-and-shoot camera that could record video. With more than an hour's worth of raw video, I was faced with finding a way to edit that to a more manageable length while still retaining the flavor of the event. The resulting video is a little less than 11 minutes long. You can see it on Vimeo. There's a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Now, it's clear that I'm not a great videographer, but it's also clear that an application such as Premiere Elements will allow even mediocre video to be edited so that it won't put people to sleep. My usual preference is to use a simple cut transition, but I didn't do any work on the audio track, and those simple cuts were just too abrupt. Instead, I elected to use crossfades ranging from 1 to 5 seconds. Premiere Elements is not the application your local television station will choose, but it's exactly what most amateur videographers will want, and here's why. The application has two modes, Quick and Expert. Start with the Quick mode, because it's the one that allows you to create edits, insert titles, and apply transitions with ease. This is essentially the equivalent of using your camera in automatic mode. As you learn more about the camera, you may yearn for more control, and then you find all those manual adjustments that are available. The same is true with Premiere Elements. The quick mode is astonishingly robust, but eventually you will want more. You'll want to have more control of the audio track, you'll want more precise editing control for the video, So that's when you click the Expert button and find a new range of capabilities. Adobe's consumer product managers state uniformly that their goal is to provide applications that people will be able to use as soon as they install them. And Premiere Elements is an outstanding example of that philosophy. Who would have thought, even as recently as a decade ago, that people who have had no training in video production techniques would be empowered to edit video on their home computers. And Adobe's product managers also talk about a second goal, that of providing applications that will allow users to grow as their understanding grows. Take the first steps with quick mode, but then expand your horizons with expert mode. And here again, Adobe gets it right. When you start Premiere Elements 11, or Photoshop Elements 11 for that matter, you'll have the option of starting with the Organizer, which is where you should prepare all of your media clips that you plan to use, or the Editor. 
The images on the TechBiter Worldwide website show me starting with the Editor view, which offered the option of creating a new project or opening an existing project. To make everything even easier, Adobe offers some online video training programs right from the splash screen. You can't miss them. So the quick mode really is easy. Each video clip is shown in the order that I used to place it, and each clip automatically connects to the next. This is helpful when you insert or delete clips because there's no need to manually move everything around. The icons at the bottom of the screen provide ways to drop effects, transitions, music, and a lot more into the project. The timeline indicator, you can think of that as a playhead, is shown by a thin vertical red line, so you can drag that around to different parts of the video. And what you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website is that I've placed the playhead precisely between two frames that are being crossfaded, so you see a little bit of each image. Editing is easy. You can cut scenes apart, make them shorter, move them around, but after editing the video for a few events this way, you'll probably begin wishing that you had more control. And you do. You just switch to Expert View. With Expert View activated, you can add a new video track. Professionals will call this the B-roll. Or add a new audio track, or several of each. The various tracks can be cross-faded and mixed together. So if you were thinking that there were no powerful features here, I think this will convince you otherwise. The video's audio track is imported, of course, but by default you'll also have a narration track for voiceovers and a soundtrack for music and sound effects. For a program that's both inexpensive and easy to use, this is a remarkably robust series of features. Before looking at the rest of the production process, let's take a look at how easy Adobe makes it to prepare your video for others, because that's what you want to do. This has been the downfall of many video editing programs. The editing process can be made relatively simple, but once you've completed your video, then there's an astonishing array of options to choose from when you want to create something that you can share. Premiere Elements offers five major options that cover the main ways that amateurs will want to share their videos. Select one of them, and you'll then be offered equally easy choices that will guide you to creating a DVD, a Blu-ray disc, an online video, video for a phone, or simply a file that you can view on a computer. And you won't have to be a video expert. So here's how all of this works together. You download video from your camera, your camcorder, or your webcam. You'll then have an array of project assets. Select these and drop them onto the timeline in whatever order you want them. Once you've done that, the fun really begins. And in this case, the fun lives in icons that are on the lower right side of the window. There you've got instant movie, tools, transitions, titles and text, effects, music, and graphics. Instant movie? Premiere Elements offers a variety of themes such as pan and zoom, wedding doves, celebration and birthday party, and a lot more. Select one and choose Next. You'll then be asked a few questions and given a few options. Then Premiere Elements will create an edited program for you. It may not be exactly what you want, but it might be a perfect starting point. With tools, you can modify the exposure and color of each scene, or perform one of several other tasks that convert your video from a disjointed series of images 
into something that makes sense. And it's under this menu that some of the most powerful features live. Time remapping and time stretch allow you to speed a scene or make it slower. The third icon is called Transitions. Everybody wants transitions, and Adobe has gone overboard here. You will find 16 various classifications or groups of transition effects, and under each of the group headings, a series of related effects. Now, it's my duty here to point out that professional filmmakers and videographers almost always stick with straight cuts and dissolve transitions. Those two are used more than anything else. Most of the fancy transitions simply call attention to themselves, and they can actually detract from the telling of a story. But still, in some cases, a special transition makes sense, and when it does, oh boy, does Adobe ever have you covered. You're going to want titles, of course. A title at the beginning, maybe some credits at the end. Easy. Select a treatment that you like, drag it into place. Double-click the title frame to open an edit box where you can add text, change the typeface, move things around, and drag a frame handle to control how long the title remains on screen. People who have worked with Photoshop or Photoshop Elements will recognize the Effects panel. Effects range from blur and sharpen to perspective modification, film looks, and even artifacts. That's art effects, not artifacts. Under each type of effect, you'll see a series of options that you can work with. A lot of people think that sound isn't very important for video, but sound is extremely important. Although the sound panel appears anemic with just 10 options, there is, in the lower left-hand corner, a small bit of text that says, Use Smart Sound. The first time you click that, you'll need to download the application, install it, and then obtain a free serial number. But once you've done that, you'll see the Smart Sound control panel. And Smart Sound offers 53 styles of music, 14 styles of sound effects. Each time you select one of the individual effects under these various styles, it'll be downloaded, so you do need an internet connection. Once downloaded, though, you can add the sound effect or the music to your video. And then out at the right edge, there's Graphics. Drop one of these onto your video just for fun. Select from 13 classes, baby, animals, birds, insects, home items, holidays, and such. Then select the enhancement that's just right for your video. So maybe you're asking, who's this program for? Well, if you're a professional videographer who specializes in making automotive commercials for General Motors, this is not the right program for you. The high-end professional features that you must have are not present here, nor should you expect them to be. If you need all of those features, well, then you're looking for Adobe Premiere CS6 and all of the ancillary applications that come with it to handle pre-production, production, and post-production tasks. But Adobe Premiere Elements hits the trifecta for amateurs inexpensive, easy, and capable. Premiere Elements is designed for people who want to create presentations at home using video from consumer-grade video cameras, point-and-shoot cameras with video functions, digital SLR cameras, and webcams. It is the right choice for people who want a program that's easy to use, but who also don't want to be disappointed by finding that they quickly exceed the program's capabilities. Even if you have some experience cutting videos together, you're going to have to work pretty hard to find something that any amateur videographer will need to do that Premiere Elements can't do. 
For more information, check out the Adobe Premiere Elements website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Windows 8 is here. Should that be a bulletin? You already know that I like it on two notebook computers. Time will tell what I think of it on a desktop system. But starting next week, that is the operating system that will be on my desktop system. One that doesn't have any touchscreen functionality. But in all honesty, neither of my notebooks has touchscreen functionality either. So, what does this new offering from Microsoft mean if you're a business owner or an IT manager? Change is always difficult. Windows 8 offers greater flexibility and is clearly better when it comes to device drivers, but the new interface is going to confuse some users and it may require some additional training. Some, maybe most, large corporations have only recently upgraded most of their users to Windows 7, most of those from Windows XP, and also to Office 2010. Well now, Microsoft would like them to move to Windows 8 and Office 2013. As much as I like the way the new operating system and the new Office Suite work together, that doesn't make it the right choice, a good choice, or even a logical choice for business owners. Let's face it, I'm a geek. It took me maybe an hour to figure out how to use the new operating system and to realize its advantages. Most office workers aren't geeks. They will need to be trained. Windows 8 is the most radical change in the history of Windows. The conversion from Windows 3 to Windows 95 was revolutionary, but only in terms of what happened in the background. The user interface was largely unchanged. Windows 8 is revolutionary in terms of the user interface. Legacy applications retain the old desktop workspace, but new applications, the ones designed for the metro or modern interface, expect to be touched. This makes them more robust on portable devices, but some users are going to be confused. I've heard some reviewers say that the learning curve for Windows 8 is steep. Now, I've always had a problem with that steep technology, because to me, steep would indicate a quick and easy learning curve, but that's not what the reviewers mean. Although I think they're right when they say it, because the learning curve really is steep, it is quick and easy. But they're suggesting it's going to take a long time for desktop users to come to grips with Windows 8, which is designed for touch screens. If users continue to interact with Windows 8 on a notebook or a desktop system, they might be confused by Windows 8 at first. But how long does it take to train people that the desktop is still there for the applications that need it? If you're a corporate IT person, Windows 8's improved security should almost be a deal clincher regardless of any other issues. Windows 8 makes web browsing safer, it also improves the security of browser extensions, and it makes downloading and using applications safer. Businesses that are thinking about ignoring Windows 8 may find this to be a bad decision. You could ignore Windows Vista because there was no compelling reason to upgrade. But Windows 8 runs on phones and other mobile devices. Your users are soon going to be bringing Windows 8 devices into your building and putting them on your network, whether you like it or not. So you better be ready. Microsoft's Surface tablets are going to be popular, I think. And you're going to find employees buy these devices and then expect to be able to use them at work. 
Windows RT, on the other hand, could cause confusion, and maybe a lot of it. RT looks a lot like Windows 8, but it won't run those x86 applications, the legacy stuff. Computers that run Windows RT will look and feel exactly like Windows 8 computers, but they won't run the applications that a lot of people are going to want to run on them. If there's a threat that Microsoft faces, this is it. How many people will buy devices that run Windows RT and then find they can't run their traditional Windows apps? RT devices include the Home and Student Edition of Microsoft Office 2013. That means that Outlook is absent, and using it in an office environment is, to say the least, problematic. The bottom line for Windows 8 is this. If you are an IT professional who thinks that it won't affect you, your users, or your company, I think you ought to reconsider that opinion. interesting week it was for fraud. Earlier this year, I reported a Microsoft researcher's conjecture that cyber crooks claim to offer great riches from Nigeria because making money depends on quickly and accurately identifying stupid people. Sometimes, though, the ploy doesn't feature Nigeria, and recently I was advised that Google wanted to give me 950,000 great British pounds sterling. They wanted to do that because of the company's 15th anniversary. But this is also the week that I received the Cinderella spam, and even one that wants to convince me that it's from the IRS. First, let's look at the Google anniversary spam. The message purported to be from Google UK, Belgrave House 76, Buckingham Palace Road, London, United Kingdom. And apparently feeling that more numbers make the fraud to be more believable, I was advised to take note of the following award-winning number, GBAT 8807330064255GB. I actually think they meant award instead of ward, but all right, whatever. There was a file reference, number UK 01193068457 Oh, 007, cute, James Bond. Notification date was the 4th of November, 2012. Now keep in mind, this message is supposed to be from Google, but Google is also mentioned in third person. Google Corporation is one company that earns its profit mainly from advertising using their very own Google search engine, www.google.org, plus.google.com, Google AdWords, pay-per-click PPC, Gmail, Gala.net, Bluemail.org, Siffy.com, email service, Google Maps, Google Earth, Google Apps, Orchid Social Networking, and YouTube and video sharing. <sighs> well, anyway, Google.org has committed over 100 million U.S. dollars in grants to nonprofits and investments in companies with breakthrough technologies, the message said. All right, so some of that is true. Google.org is a philanthropic organization, but why would Google want to give me any money? They want to congratulate me once again for being selected as a major customer in the ongoing Google's 15th happy anniversary. These funds is a giveaway price. I think they meant prize. From Google Promotion Board to our esteemed customer that are using Google product and promoting Google online. 
Hence, we do believe, with your prize, you will continue to be active in your patronage towards Google. All right, a lot of nice words there, but I still don't understand why Google wants to give me nearly one million pounds. So, most readers, long ago, have figured out that this is phony. If they haven't, then this paragraph should really seal it. The idea of this anniversary is to eradicate poverty, and within ten years from now, there will be notable richness among the many unusual people around the world. Do you really think that anyone who has even a casual relationship with English wrote that? The spam then included a standard request for identification information from me, and continuing to set its bait, the spammer cautions the recipient not to tell anyone. Note, the Google Promotion Award team has discovered a huge number of double claims due to winners informing close friends, relatives, and third parties about their winning, and also sharing their PIN numbers. As a result of this, these friends try to claim the lottery on behalf of the real winners. The Google Promotion Award team has reached a decision from headquarters that any double claim discovered by the lottery board will result to the cancelling of that particular winning, making a loss for both the double claimer and the real winner, as it is taken that the real winner was the informer to the double claimer about the lottery. So you are hereby strongly advised once more to keep your winnings strictly confidential until you receive your prize. That final bit really is genius. A person who is stupid enough to fall for this would be stupid enough to believe that the information shouldn't be shared. Well, let's move on to what I call the Cinderella spam. And I call it that because of the way the ploy develops. The message begins with, Hello, dear. Incidentally, that turns out to be a very effective indicator of a fraudulent spam. And it claims to be from a Cynthia Mossop, or maybe a Cynthia Davidson. And it begins this way. My name is Cynthia Mossop. I am 16 year old. I am daughter to Donald and Don Mossop, who were victims of the Buffalo plane crash. My late dad, before his death, was the head technician with Xerox with Branch in U.S. and had wife over there, which was not disclosed to us, my mom and I. Few months after the death of my parents, this woman has come from nowhere to claim all that my father left for me. Anyone who reads further, of course, is a fool, but let's see where this message goes. I skipped to the bottom of the message and found Cynthia's phone number. Now, in the first paragraph, she said that her father had a wife over there in the U.S., so the obvious conclusion is she is not writing from the United States. But her phone number has a 646 area code. That's New York City. Not that I believe for an instant that she or anyone involved with this message lives there. Anybody can obtain a number from Skype or some other service that uses U.S. area codes. The call could be answered in London, Prague, or Abuja, the capital city of Nigeria. What is it that Cynthia has to offer me? That's where the Cinderella story begins to play out. As the first daughter, most of my father's properties were willed to me, but my stepmom, in conspiracy with the former attorney of my dad, have tactically and forcefully collected almost everything from me, leaving me with nothing but not known to them the sum of $6,500,000 with an insurance company in Houston, Texas. Several times I have been threatened by my stepmom if I knew anything about the money, but my consistent answer has been no. The other day she beat me thoroughly. Well, the hook is pretty well set now, but what does she want from me? 
You can have 40% of the funds. Just save my life, please. If you truly want to help me, send me your phone number, full name, and home address so that I can forward to my father's attorney to enable him release the documents of the funds to you so that you can contact the insurance company on my behalf. The letter ends with the New York City phone number I mentioned earlier and a yahoo.com email address. You know, if you're mugged while walking down a street, I will feel sorry for you. But if you respond to a message that's clearly a fraud, all I can say is, hey, pal, sorry about your luck. Spam number three is from the IRS. That is, if you believe the IRS sends messages from Netherlands. A vast antivirus didn't believe it either. What got a vast attention, though, wasn't the return address, but the infected file that was attached. The file was immediately deleted, but the email message was retained. I would have to rate this attempt to impersonate the IRS as extremely poor. Take a look at it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Since this message was attempting to place a Trojan horse on my computer, the email shouldn't be attempting to eliminate all but the stupidest people. It should want everyone possible to click on the infected file. Those who are distributing this kind of malware want the widest possible dissemination, but this message is not going to get it. The first clue, of course, is the source of the message, an individual user in Netherlands. Even a dimwit would know that the IRS doesn't send tax notices from outside the United States. Most of us probably know that the IRS doesn't send tax notices via email at all. The message tells me that if I want to read the rejection details, all I have to do is open the attachment. As a police officer I know is fond of saying, I may have been born at night, but it wasn't last night. In short circuits at Microsoft, the Windows head heads out the door, and if the choice came down to Steven Sanofsky or Steve Ballmer stepping down, one might reasonably have wished that it would have been Ballmer and not Sanofsky who departed Microsoft. Whether that statement is valid or not won't be answered right away. It may not be answered for a year or more. But the decision by Sanofsky to quit and by Ballmer to accept the resignation will have long-lasting effects. Sanofsky spent 23 years at Microsoft, and just a few weeks ago, he did stand with Ballmer in New York City at the launch party for Windows 8. Neither Microsoft nor Sanofsky has said much about the reasons for the split, other than to say that the decision was mutual. Microsoft's stock prices have been lower than they should be as a result of concern by investors that the company won't be able to bridge the gap between desktop computing, that's a platform that Microsoft essentially owns, and portable computing, that's the purview of Apple and Android. Windows 8 is Microsoft's dramatic attempt to perform that daunting task. Wall Street's immediate, eh, not to call it a knee-jerk reaction, to Sanofsky's departure was a 3% drop in Microsoft share prices. The 47-year-old Sanofsky, who joined Microsoft in 1989 as a software engineer, had been seen as a probable successor for Ballmer, who is 56. Sanofsky had served as an advisor to Bill Gates, and later managed the Office Suite project before taking over the Windows operation in 2006. Sanofsky's first task was to help Microsoft recover from Windows Vista by rushing the much-improved Windows 7 to market. 
Various reports have suggested that Sanofsky has repeatedly disagreed with Balmer and other managers. Sanofsky sent an email message to Microsoft employees and in part said the decision was a personal and private choice, but then he left the Microsoft campus immediately. That's unusual. Sanofsky wasn't viewed within Microsoft as a team player. At a time when Balmer is demanding more cooperation across the company's various departments, that trait may well be the one that did the most damage. Star players are important, but so is cohesive leadership. And maybe that reverses, or at least puts into perspective, my opening comment. If you take one of about 200 classes from more than 30 universities via the Coursera online service, you might earn college credit for the work. Might. And future tense. The American Council on Education is considering the recommendation, but don't get too excited just yet because a pilot project would provide credit for just a handful of classes, and each college or university would still have to determine whether or not to accept any given class, and if so, how much credit to grant, but it's a start. The American Council on Education's recommendations are at least given serious consideration by colleges and universities, and online education has significant support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The Gates Foundation sees benefit in what are called Massive Online Open Courses, or MOOC, as a better approach to providing higher education. One potential problem with MOOCs currently is that no mechanism exists by which an institution that offers the class can guarantee that the students are who they claim to be. Coursera will begin offering procedures that will provide ways to verify identifications and to ensure that exams are taken only by students who have actually signed up for the classes. The classes will continue to be offered for free, but those who want to earn college credit will be required to pay what's being termed modest fees for the credits. Coursera was founded by two Stanford University professors. The idea has proved popular, but most students who sign up for online courses still fail to complete them. This could in part be because the students make no financial commitment, but also because the work currently doesn't earn any credit. And a quick side note, next weekend is the weekend after Thanksgiving, and there is usually not a TechBiter Worldwide program the weekend after Thanksgiving. In addition, this week is the 40th wedding anniversary of the TechBiter and Mrs. TechBiter. In addition to the addition, this is the week that some TechBiter Worldwide hardware is being upgraded, so between the post-Thanksgiving stupor, the anniversary, the tearing the work area apart and putting it back together again, silence seemed to be a really good choice. I'll be back the first weekend in December. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.